Hey everyone, I'm Thanos Davelis, and welcome back to The Greek Current, a podcast by the Hellenic American Leadership Council and Kathy Merini, where we highlight the top stories of the day every afternoon with analysis from guest experts, policymakers, journalists, and health staff. World leaders recently gathered in Glasgow for the COP26 summit, where they signed off on the Glasgow Climate Pact, which states that carbon emissions will have to fall by 45% by 2030 to keep alive the goal set out in the Paris Agreement to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. This summit followed a summer of record-breaking heat waves and intense wildfires, such as those experienced by Greece and other Mediterranean countries, which were largely attributed to climate change. Experts Alice Hill and Madeleine Babin joined the Greek Current to assess whether COP26 was a success, look at the many challenges rising temperatures pose to humans across the globe, and explore the policy initiatives that can be adopted in response. Alice Hill is the David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. She previously served as Special Assistant to President Barack Obama and Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council staff, leading the development of national policy to build resilience to catastrophic risks, including climate change. Madeleine Babin is a research associate for the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at the Council on Foreign Relations, where her research focuses on climate change policy and building resilience to the catastrophic risk of climate change. Alice and Madeline, welcome to The Greek Current. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for having us. A key goal of world leaders at COP26 was to keep alive the Paris Agreement's aim to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Is this still a realistic aim? Well, I think it's an aim, and certainly it was exciting to see it included in the pact that came out of the Conference of the Parties, the 26th. That pact explicitly called out the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal of keeping heating below that from pre-industrial times. But in my opinion, the president of COP, this COP, Alex Sharma, got it right when he said, yes, the 1.5 degree goal is alive, but it has a weak pulse. And a lot remains to be seen. These are just promises by countries. And if you look at the quarter century that we've been meeting so far, this is the 26th of these meetings, it hasn't produced the results that we would hope. In fact, we have continued to warm. Right. And so building off of that as well, prior to COP26, the estimations had projected that the world was on pace to reach around 3.5, 3.6 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century. And based on the most updated emissions pledges at COP26, updated analysis found that it will reach around 2.4 degrees Celsius. And that even with all of the COP26 pledges, countries will be emitting approximately twice as much greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere in 2030 than would be required to achieve the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming goal. And so with that, while we have made progress, the 1.5 degrees Celsius is still not quite within reach, but at the end of the conference, delegates did agree that nations will return next year at COP27 to propose more ambitious climate targets in an effort to further narrow that gap between the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal and the current trends. A key issue in this debate and at the summit was climate finance. What's it going to cost if we are to seriously meet the challenges posed by climate change, and how far are we from resolving this funding problem? Well, we're far from resolving this funding challenge. The amounts involved are really stunning. It's estimated by BlackRock, one of our largest asset managers in the world, 
that it will cost a billion dollars a year for the developing nations alone to transition to green energy, and that it will cost 70 billion, that's estimated by the United Nations, for the developing world to adapt. And of course, adaptation is preparing for these impacts like wildfires, floods, droughts, extreme heat. $70 billion a year now, and by 2030, it could be up to $300 billion. So that is big money, and where it will come from is unclear. And that's not even talking about the cost that the developed world needs to incur in order to transition to green energy and prepare itself. So big price tag attached to climate change. Right. And as Alice mentioned, the costs are huge, and the track record of the developed world in mobilizing this amount of money or anywhere near it has been spotty. In 2009, developed countries pledged to mobilize $100 billion by 2020 for developing nations to both mitigate and adapt to a changing climate. But unfortunately, that deadline was missed this past year, falling over $20 billion short. And now richer nations are projecting they won't meet this $100 billion goal until 2023. And this number was always anticipated to be seen as a floor and not a ceiling. So in the future, countries will be expected to come back to the table to set higher targets, and the hard work will then have to begin again to meet the elevated goal. Climate change was highlighted as a security issue for the first time in Glasgow. Why is this a significant development, in your opinion? Well, it's a recognition that Climate change is a threat multiplier. That's a term that's been used here in the United States for quite some time in recognition of the types of security threats that flow from constrained water resources during drought or food insecurity as a result of lower crop production, migration challenges as people move inland when the land simply falls into the ocean. All of those events are viewed as making conditions worse. In fact, the UN Secretary General at COP26 used the term crisis multiplier. And there hasn't been really a widespread global recognition of what climate change will mean for militaries and national security. For militaries, it will deeply affect their installations, their operational readiness. Can very fit young men and women be ready to engage in combat in extremely hot conditions? Do they have the tools, weapons, airplanes, fleets of cars that will operate in these very changed environments? And that work hasn't been done to scale yet really anywhere in the world. So this being featured at the COP26 signals we're entering into a new era when it comes to our recognition of the threat posed by climate change in a way that that issue has been subsumed in the discussion about the need to mitigate or cut emissions. But now we already are seeing the impacts and that brings crises forward and then climate change will just make all of this harder to control and a greater challenge for our national security establishment. Right. And 
in recent years, climate change's role as a threat multiplier has been on clear display. We've seen everything from rising seas to extreme weather events, ranging from storms and droughts and wildfires and floods, amplifying the risk of conflict, increasing threats from internal strife and migration, competition over resources as they become increasingly scarce, and disruptions to military readiness. As the UN mentioned in a recent report, it's at the very heart of the security agenda. And so the presence of defense officials conveys a strong signal that the ways in which climate change endangers national security are being heeded, and this recognition could help militaries to find ways to decrease their emissions and to prepare to adapt to a warming world. Madeline, this summer we saw record-breaking and prolonged heat waves in Greece, in the Mediterranean, and in other parts of the world, a phenomenon that's becoming a new standard in all of our lives. You've written about the dangers extreme heat poses to our health. Is this hotter world sustainable for us? The short answer would be not without adequate adaptation. Extreme heat threatens the lives and livelihoods of millions of people across the globe. As we mentioned, it contributes to excess deaths and illnesses, along with worsening certain health conditions. It damages infrastructure, it worsens food insecurity, and developing nations and low-income communities frequently bear the brunt of these impacts while having the least resources to cope. In countries throughout Asia, Europe, and Africa, heat spells and heat waves have constituted some of the deadliest disasters in recent years. And in 2019 alone, extreme heat killed over 350,000 people in just nine countries. And these worsening heat extremes and heat waves, along with other climate impacts like storms, floods, and wildfires, are becoming more frequent and more severe as the Earth warms. This means that by mid-century, millions more people globally could be experiencing and subject to deadly heat waves. And this is particularly troubling as less than one third of global households have access to air conditioning and only 8% of the nearly 3 billion people living in the hottest parts of the world have air conditioners. In Europe alone, less than 5% of homes are air conditioned. And so as heat waves increasingly pose a danger to public health and threaten lives and threaten to exacerbate inequalities, the need to adapt grows more urgent. And to adequately cope and adapt in a warming world, because even if we drop emissions to zero today, we'll continue to experience warming in the coming decades. It will take a concerted action at local, regional, and national levels. For example, the Biden administration has been spearheading this effort at the national level in a variety of ways. It's ranging from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration announcing it will develop the first U.S. labor standard to protect workers from heat exposure, and the Local Income Energy Assistance Program working to increase assistance to households that can't otherwise afford air conditioning or have access to cooling during heat waves. But concerted efforts at all levels of government and in concert with the private sector will be critical to ensuring we have sustainable livelihoods in a warming world. Cities and large urban centers are particularly vulnerable to rising temperatures. And, you know, Athens appointed a chief heat officer this year to help deal with this problem. What are some of the policy initiatives that countries and cities can adapt in the face of these rising temperatures, Madeline? So there are a number of initiatives across all levels of government and that include working with the private sector that can be adopted to address the effects of rising temperatures and the worsening heat waves that follow. At a national level, one great example would be the country of France, who after nearly 15,000 people died in a heat wave in 2003, the country created a national heat adaptation plan and 
this plan has effectively cut the nation's death toll by 90% from heat waves. It includes a core initiative of well-developed early warning systems, which is a critical element to any adaptation and preparation strategy. In advance of the heat waves, the government circulates everything from posters to radios and TV campaigns, internet ads, all ways of contacting and alerting citizens of the approaching danger. And early warnings have been shown to be one of the most effective adaptive mechanisms for protecting lives when disaster strikes. In fact, the Global Commission on Adaptation found that early warning systems save lives and assets worth at least 10 times their cost. And just 24 hours of warning of an impending storm or heat wave can reduce damage up to a third. On a local level, city leaders can focus on local adaptation solutions, such as implementing measures like cool roofs, which are essentially roofs that reflect more sunlight rather than absorbing it. And so it allows both the building and the immediate surroundings to stay cooler and require less energy for air conditioning, which also contributes to lessening emissions that come from that process. And city heat adaptation plans can also increase resilience. They can focus on expanding access to cooling centers and air conditioning. And ultimately, these local efforts will be crucial to address highly localized impacts that are affected by a confluence of factors ranging from ecological conditions, pollution levels, local community health conditions, and resource access that are all unique to certain areas. So city-level planning has worked in cities across countries to reduce illness and mortality. And those local efforts will be vital in any adaptive response. Alice, you've written a book titled The Fight for Climate Change After COVID. What are some of the key lessons or parallels that you see between how we have handled this pandemic and our broader efforts to tackle climate change? There are many parallels between these two catastrophic risks of pandemics and climate change. One clear parallel is that they're borderless disasters. And when these risks materialize, they just do away with a lot of the assumptions that we have about how we'll cope. And so we need to think differently in terms of addressing the fact that they will appear and what choices we make inside one border may affect a population in another border. Another parallel is that they benefit from advanced planning and preparation. As Madeline has said, investments in risk reduction carry huge benefits in terms of reducing the ultimate cost. A really vivid example of this is the difference between how South Korea handled the pandemic and the United States. You know, COVID-19 was detected in those two countries on the very same day in January 2020. South Korea decided to mobilize like an army. They had been previously threatened by SARS and MERS, and they didn't want to have a pandemic across their country. So they stood up drive through testing centers that were like Starbucks. They had extensive contact tracing. And although initially they had the most cases outside mainland China, by this summer, they had only had about 2,000 deaths. Now, when the first case was detected in the United States, President Trump then said, no big deal, it's just one case. And we were slow to activate our pandemic planning and to follow through 
on the preparedness measures that we had identified as a nation. And by this summer, our death rate, even though our population is larger, over 300 million, about 650,000 this summer, and South Korea had 2,000 deaths in a population of 30 million. So early action matters, and I think you're seeing this right now. That lesson has been internalized by leaders across the globe as we see this new variant emerging in the weeks leading up to the holidays. We're seeing that nations are saying we've got to slow down our interaction with each other to try to contain the spread of this. It will spread, but if we work now to restrict its spread, we can gain an advantage on the disease. Very similar for climate change. If we, first of all, restrict our emissions, we won't have as much heating and we, therefore we won't have as many extreme events. But we also can make sure that we're investing in preparedness now before the bad thing happens. Just generally for risk mitigation, for every dollar you spend today, you can save anywhere from $6 to $11 on different kinds of costs that are incurred as a result of the disaster. So huge benefit to moving the investment to earlier action rather than just waiting for the catastrophe to unfold. Those are just a few of the lessons, but we need to imagine the unimaginable, and that is what typically catastrophic risk is, and then step back and say, what will we wish we had done knowing that this would occur, and then start doing those things. And if we do those things, we'll be far better prepared. Alice, Madeline, thank you both for joining us uh, on The Greek Current today. It was great speaking with you. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you very much. In other news, Pope Francis will be back in Greece for another historic visit this week, becoming the second pope to visit Athens in this millennium and the second to ever visit Cyprus. Pope Francis visited the Greek island of Lesbos in 2016 at the peak of the migrant and refugee crisis, and migration will once again be a central issue during his trip. Pope Francis has reportedly arranged for around 50 would-be refugees in Cyprus to travel to Italy after his visit to Cyprus, and a Vatican spokesman did not rule out that Lesbos-based migrants might also be transferred after the visit to Greece. Greek government sources stress the significance of the visit, noting that the pontiff reaches millions of people all over the world and is renowned for his human sensibilities. Finally, the European Union has revealed details of a 300 billion euro global investment plan, described as a true alternative to China's Belt and Road strategy. China has funded rail, roads, and ports, but has been accused of leaving some countries saddled with debt. Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said countries did not have enough options on finding investments for big infrastructure projects, adding that they needed trusted partners to design projects that were sustainable. Projects will have to be of high quality, with a high level of transparency and good governance, and will have to deliver tangible results for the countries involved, she explained. One EU official told the BBC that Africa would be a major focus of the scheme. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.